Good afternoon and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. When universities decide to reclassify their institution's athletics programs, it's a pretty big deal. I always wonder what went on behind the scenes to make this happen. And by extension, this is an area of research that I am really interested in. I'm always open to learning more about the process that senior leaders go through to make this important decision. Today, I'm joined by two higher education leaders who led their institution, Northern Kentucky University, from NCAA Division II to Division I. Dr. Jim Vitruba is the former president of Northern Kentucky and recently retired from the NKU faculty after eight years. Dr. Katie Hershaday is currently the vice president and chief of staff at Widener University. Prior to that, she was the executive assistant to the president and board secretary at Northern Kentucky. Jim and Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Karen. It's great Thanks, to be Karen. Here. Jim, let's start with the landscape of D2 in 1997. NKU is one of only two non-D1 public institutions in Kentucky. Give our listeners a sense of how, how that frustrated both the board and the faculty back then. Well, I think, I think uh, one has to keep in mind, Karen, that uh, NKU was founded in 1968. It was still a very young institution. It was in a very dynamic metropolitan region, the greater Cincinnati metropolitan region. It was growing by leaps and bounds, but we were an outlier in the state capital in a lot of ways. We were the youngest, the newest, uh, we were the least well-funded, and we were the only one playing uh, other than uh, Kentucky State University playing at the D2 level when everyone else at D1. That prevented us from creating some natural rivalries. It was also the case that our conference, the Great Lakes Valley uh, Conference, uh, was uh, growing, but growing, it, it, we were beginning to grow away from the profile that was the GLVC. Uh, relatively small institutions, a large number of private liberal arts colleges. Um, we, were, we were headed in a different direction as an institution. That makes sense. And we're going to talk a little bit more about profile a little bit further down. But Katie, in your role at Northern Kentucky, it put you front and center with board members and other internal and external stakeholders as this idea was being bandied about. What were the sentiments of folks you were interacting with in those early years about athletics? Sure. And kind of adding to that, I was also a student at the university oh, when right. the very early parts of this were happening. So I have that student perspective, too. Right. But I think that from a board perspective, from a community perspective, from a student perspective in particular, people saw this as a natural progression of the university. What started out as kind of a commuter college uh, for only local students, really it started to blossom and it started to change. And you really started to see this transformation happen after Dr. Votruba came through the hard work of previous presidents and through the work that Jim was doing at the campus. So I think everyone saw this as a natural progression. We're also in a sports heavy area, like many people in the country are, but we're right here at the, the crossroads of Kentucky, Ohio, and Indiana. So you have great sports here, uh, including things like the crosstown shootout between uh, Xavier University and the University of Cincinnati. And a lot of Northern students wondered why we weren't in on action like that. And it's rare that division two institutions get to play division one institutions like that. So I think people really wanted to be part of the conversation and saw it as part of our natural progression, but also saw it as something that we needed to really kind of have arrived, to really have kind of matured in the eyes of our community and the eyes of others. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And at the time, Xavier and Cincinnati were both Division I programs. They'd been Division I for quite some time. So, and I would assume they were your peers in terms of recruiting students as well. Were you attracting uh, a mix they, of students that they way? Were, they were certainly our competitors. Okay. Uh, I mean, everyone, it's a very competitive environment for students. Uh, Xavier uh, came to Division I more recently than the University of Cincinnati, but still they were at that time probably 30 years into it. Okay, okay. So Jim, you mentioned to me in an earlier conversation that originally this started with some board members wanting to add football to the D2 athletics portfolio. How did that morph into moving to Division I and, and focusing on basketball? Well, and, and that's exactly right. Uh, the, between the time I was appointed president and the time I arrived, the university board, uh, uh, with the uh, support of the interim president, approved uh, the creation of a Division II football program to go with our other programs. Now, I, I need to make clear, we were being very, very competitive across the board at D2. We were a very yes. successful D2 program, several national championships. Uh, but but we're football crazy. We're, we're basketball crazy in Kentucky, but we're football crazy in greater Cincinnati. Oh, it, it is a huge sport. And there was a feeling that having football uh, would, would contribute to the institution in a variety of ways. The, 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 the problem arose was when you start to drill down on the numbers and ask yourself, what's it going to cost to do Division II scholarship football? And uh, I, soon after my arrival, I brought in a couple of ADs from mid-majors that had a Division II programs, not, not Division I. But ask them not whether we should go to create football, but whether whether the numbers worked. And they, uh, not to my surprise, I'd come from Michigan State, um, said these now multiply by three, multiply by four. And so yeah. I uh, sat down with the board and I said, look, um, I understand what your intentions were, but I want you to understand the implications of this decision. And there are other there are other options we could go and. I use Xavier as a model. Model uh, Xavier had had football 20 years ago at that time. They right. gave it up and decided to make basketball their marquee sport. And it seemed to me that that was a better model for us than, uh, in, in fact, I can remember saying to the board, we can do football at division two if that's what you wanna do. But we need to ask ourselves, are we better off at division one without football, but with a, a, a marquee basketball program and, uh, and that conversation didn't happen overnight. It, it took place over several months, but um, I think they agree. Well, I know they, they believe that, that yes, that's a, that's a better option for us. Interesting. And Katie, as, as Jim just talked about, NKU is really, really good in division two, a very high ranking in many sports, few national championships, a clean athletics program in terms of few or no NCAA violations. From your perspective, why rock the boat and jump to the shark-infested waters of Division One? Well, not all the waters are shark-infested. <laughs> it's, it, it's certainly probably not as much at, at the mid-major level, right? It's, it's a much different situation when you're at a flagship uh, program in a flagship university. But, but I think why rock the boat? For, for a lot of reasons. One, you know, we, we talked about the maturation of the university. Two, you know, all of our media in Northern Kentucky is covered by Cincinnati. And so every, you know, every day when I'd open up the paper and I'd read the sports section, even the days after we won national championships and we won three national championships, the day after we get a few column inches uh, compared to, to a, another institution in Cincinnati or further away, 
who would be on the front page for a loss that particular day. So, you know, I think that there were some PR reasons to do it. I think there were some things just to kind of make, to, to almost help our entire community to understand that like we're a community who's arrived. We're a community who, who um, can embrace this level of athletic competition. We also thought that it would be a better way to engage our community more broadly. Now I've been a Norse fan since 1999. I've gone to tons and tons and tons of athletic activities. Even though I live away from the university now, I continue to have season tickets. And when we're not in pandemic times, I'm able to go to, to a number of those games. And when you, when you watch the fan base that's grown, I mean, Northern has always had a great fan base, uh, even in the division two era. And that has just continued to grow our ability to reach out you know, when, when we made this jump, I, Jim, maybe you, maybe you can agree to this or maybe you see it differently. But I remember after we made the announcements, as I watched in the weeks and the months and the years after that, there's a whole lot more people in our community who are wearing NKU gear. When I would show up at a chamber meeting, people who had never identified them as themselves as a graduate of Northern were all of a sudden saying, hey, I graduated from NKU and I'm really excited about this D1 thing. So I think that there's, there's reasons from an athletic standpoint to do this. There's reasons from an institutional standpoint to do this. There's reasons from a community standpoint to do this. And I think that we were in a good position on all three to make that jump. Karen, uh, if I could jump in on this one. Um, th there's, there's an old saying in higher education that an institution's reputation, an institution's reputation lags behind it by a decade. Hmm. So if you're aspirational, if you're, if you're growing, uh, not only in terms of enrollment, but in terms of academic programs and, and all the other things that rep represent maturation, you, you wanna accelerate the, the, the closing of that gap between public perception and reality. NKU, uh, the, Division I helped us do that. It, it, and it was much more, it was about much more than athletics. What I said to the campus and what I said to the board was, you don't go Division I just for, for athletics alone. You do it because it's, it's instrumental to achieving a broader set of institutional visions, aspirations, purposes. That way you can justify the expense and you can justify the risk. And, but, but for athletics alone, I think it's a tough one to justify. Well, building what, on what you just said, there was obviously messaging and reasoning given to all the various stakeholders. So if you consider athletic department personnel and student athletes, hey, you're going from D2 to D1, faculty, we're gonna spend more money on, on sports, alumni. Well, at least you'll see more of our gear around town. State <laughs> legislators, fans and media. What was the messaging like to each of those different stakeholder groups? I, I think, Karen, that the message, messaging was quite similar. To the students, it was not a difficult sell. Katie, Katie remembers it. Uh, uh, students were excited about it. it, it uh, we talked about student quality of life. Uh, we talked about recruitment, retention, all of those kinds of things that can connect. Um, uh, with the community, we talked about much the same. We talked about the community's aspirations. And we believed that the institution had to match its aspirations with the region. The region, our side of the river is about 400,000 people and it was growing like crazy, it was maturing like crazy, all of that. The, the legislature, it wasn't a difficult sell either uh, because they, they're, used, they're used to basketball, they're used to athletics. And as we all know, sometimes, unfortunately, what, what the public knows about a university is frequently <laughs> the, the borders of the athletic program. Right. And, uh, but, but that's not insignificant. So 
we tailored messages. Uh, our our uh, donors, we had to talk, talk. I think the toughest sell in, in my recollection was with the faculty okay. because faculty were, faculty I think trusted the university administration and the board at that point enough to, to, to leave that door open. But they said, look, we don't, we're willing to support this as long as it, it doesn't undermine investments that need to be made in core academic programs and academic support services and more faculty and all the things that contribute to the academic enterprise. And we could do that with integrity because we were growing, which meant as enrollments grew, revenue grew. Uh, we, we installed a, a, a modest athletic fee. Katie, I think it was $20 or something like that. But it got us going. We ended up doubling the athletic program from somewhere around four million to eight or nine million. Um, but but we did that at a time when when we could do that without risking undermining other core functions of the university. And 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 we had to talk nonstop in that regard. Yeah, that all of those constituents have to be aligned in order for leadership to move an institution forward. And in this case pretty strong alignment, stronger in some places than others, some constituencies than others. Uh, the, the board had to be convinced and, um, and we still had some board members who thought, well, let's do D1 and let's do football. <laughs> and I, and uh, th that, that required us uh, having some, some conversation about the reality of that choice. Katie, Karen, uh, I think one of, the, one of the things that Jim was, was always great at was listening listening to everyone and understanding their viewpoint and really thinking and contemplating that so what we had was a, was a high degree of trust and a high degree of engagement but we also engaged other key constituents as, as well so there was a subcommittee of the board who was examining this issue we had great faculty participation within a number of key university committees that had oversight and responsibility with athletics so there were kind of all of these pieces. These were not things we were putting together in a desire to go division one, but these were all the key ingredients that were already happening. We had outstanding uh, faculty athletic representative, uh, the, the faculty academic uh, athletic representatives who were helping to, to be engaged in all of this as well. And so there were all of those pieces. So it wasn't different messages for different people. Some of the, some of the message might've kind of resonated more um, for some audiences than, than other people, but um, Jim has always been completely transparent uh, about um, about these things, and we had to be because this was a big change for the institution. And so, um, to talk about it openly and frankly, and what our goals and aspirations were, you know, I think was important. Little did we know at the time that we'd be as successful as the university has been. Um, that was kind of a bonus. We always said, one day we think that we'll be really competitive. One day we think we'll make the NCAA tournament. Little did we know that that was going to happen in very short order. Karen, one of the one of the messages to our community and to our donor base that 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 had to be hit hard over and over again was that this was that, that it was going to take 20 years. This was going to be a long march. Yeah. Uh, and don't expect all of a sudden to be successful at the D1 level in a short time. Uh, and uh, and because we needed to prepare. And, and I said to them, look, if you're as supportive as you say you are, I've got to have your commitment to stay with it over the next 20 years. That's what we're going to build. And in the process, we're going to take the entire institution to another level, not just athletics. 
give me a sense, either one of you, about what the, uh, the size of the student population was when you started this idea, where, you, where, where it ended up, and also the composition of students. Did it help you in any metrics or that type of thing? Um, I, can, I can give you some. We were, when I came in 1997, we were, we were about, I think we were about 9,000 students. Okay. Uh, when this conversation began, we were probably closer to 11. When we went D1, we were closer to 15 or 16, probably closer to 16, not, not quite 16, but uh, the student profile did change. Uh, uh, the number of applications, uh, it, I, I hate to go too far on this, Karen, because it's, uh, um, this is all correlational. I mean, it's, uh, th this was a dynamic institution, things were happening. Right. One could argue, well, it would have ha happened without, I'm not so sure of that. We were, we were playing, uh, let's take, let's take men's and women's basketball for a moment. At that time, we were playing in a 2000 seat arena, field house. <clears throat> uh, soon after our, our discussions began about, uh, about going D1, uh, we began speaking to the legislature about the need to, to expand, to, to build a new venue. Uh, not to belabor this, but what that resulted in was a 10,000 seat arena. Mm. But what, we would get a thousand people for a men's or women's basketball game. They played together at that time at right. D2. Uh, we might get a thousand, fifteen hundred. If it was a rivalry, it would be two thousand. Uh, last year, with rivalries uh, before COVID, uh, we were getting six, seven thousand, and and that's that's a big difference. Yeah. Uh, it it just raises the visibility and and the presence. And as Katie said. All of a sudden, there's headlines in the uh, in the media about what's going on at NKU. And again, Katie mentioned this, but I think we've been to the NCAA uh, two of the first three years, four years, and would have gone last year had it not been shut down. And two two nights ago, from when we're <laughs> recording this, so this is the Horizon League tournament. We had a tip-in bucket at the last second of uh, of our first tournament game that led Sports Center. <laughs> If we were a Division II institution, that would not have led Sports Center that night. Yeah. Well, let's just talk for a minute. This, this is a phenomenon that I'm absolutely just amazed at. And I talk in my classes about this, but, you know, an institution in the beginning when ESPN first started really getting going with college basketball, getting their scores on the bottom of the ticker was like everybody's goal. That's when we know we've arrived like you said about columnages in the local paper, is it a headline on the first page or is it in the aggregates at the, at the bottom? Why do those things matter? Tell me why those matter. I think they matter because they, they uh, promote uh, institutional visibility, promotes institutional branding, uh, winning, winning the Horizon Conference. It also, it also Karen, uh, allowed us to enter a conference of aspirational institutions, institutions like us or institutions that we aspire to, to, to be like. And, and that's a big deal. When you go to the NCAA tournament, there is a lot of visibility, a lot of excitement. Students, students um, uh, have a lot of pride. The community has a lot of pride. Uh, I, would say, I would say that uh, it would be imprudent for any institution to not think this through very carefully. The, it is very different today than it was 10 years ago when we began talking about this. It is very different. The politics of universities are very different. Uh, the, the forces that are shaping institutions are very different. 
and and uh, I would just I would, my my, my um, advice is is caution, but before one goes down this road. One of the things we always talked about too uh, was that we didn't want athletics to just be the headline for the university, but we wanted our great uh, plays to be the headline for the university, our great arts. We wanted our great theater program. We wanted our great informatics program. We wanted our nursing program. We wanted the business. We wanted all of those to kind of, to, to excel at the same level. And yeah. that sometimes the only way to be able to open people's eyes to all of those other great things academically uh, that are happening at the institution is through athletics. That for some people that's, that's the only hook or that that's the biggest hook. And I think that's one of the things that we did is, is that we made sure that it's, at the same time we were promoting athletics, we're promote, we were promoting all the other things that made the institution great as well. Not only promoting, but investing. Mm -hmm. we, had, we had as high aspirations for our academic programs as we did for athletics. And we felt that by moving them together, it would be easier to move each. Interesting. Yeah. So there's, there's two paths I want to go down with you first. And I, I really, I think I want to start with this idea of why it's so difficult today versus back then. So tell me about what the, what the cautionary uh, advice you would give to, to institutions that are considering doing this today. I think back when we were doing this, uh, it was a much more stable uh, fiscal environment for universities than it is today. Enrollments have plummeted. Uh, state revenues have, have gone uh, have become much smaller. Uh, the, 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 the kind of political tension within institutions is much more fierce today than it was uh, back then. I mean, it was, uh, our campus was high on trust, but it was all also embraced a kind of shared aspiration in terms of what we could be and believed that we could do it, that it wasn't just hollow rhetoric. Yeah. And athletics became part of that. Today, it's not that you can't do it today, but it, it would be much more difficult in my view to be able to justify in, in such a intense zero sum environment that you're gonna be able to do this and be competitive. I wanna add that. You can go D1, but the benefits in my view of going D1 is if you win more than you lose. Not that you win championships all the time, but you win more than you lose, which maintains loyalty and, and, and based and, and all of the other things that, um, that, that you want for athletics and academics. Mm -hmm. but, you, but, but you can't, it's kind of in for a penny, in for a pound. If you're gonna do it, uh, you can't lowball it to a point where, okay, we're division one, but we win three games a season. You know, we can't recruit athletes. We can't, anyway, I won't. I, I just think, yeah. I, think it's a, I think it's a different environment. I, I work today with a number of university presidents around the country, primarily mid-majors. And they are, and especially Karen, the ones with football, because football is a financial drain. There isn't a single mid-major program that, that comes close to, to supporting itself. Right. And um, it's, it's, it's just, a, it's a different time. Time, yeah, absolutely. And I think, as Jim said, you know, we, we were in a growth mode. We were in a growth mode with students. We were in a growth mode in terms of um, some state appropriations, but but you also have to make sure that you have the institutional integrity to do it right. You can't just fund your marquee sports and fund them well and hope that they win and they carry everybody else on their yeah. back. We funded all of our sports at 100% scholarship levels. We funded all of our support, all of our sports 
to be uh, competitive and to, to go out and, and to win, as, as Jim mentioned. And, you know, I think that that's kind of a key part of it, too. So you could, yeah, you could go, maybe this is a little bit less expensive or a little bit less of a jump if you're really focused on kind of a core set of programs. We were focused on equity throughout the entire athletic program and how critical that was. That was a hallmark for Northern since uh, athletics began in 1972. Yeah. yeah. It was also the case that NKU had one of the first female ADs in the country. Uh, and Jane Meyer was a leader, a, a, a pioneer, a trailblazer. And we weren't going to go down this road without funding on uh, uh, across all sports and across both genders. I know Jane Meyer. I know exactly what you're talking about. You yep. had the ideal leader for that situation. She was wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about conference fit. You know, the, 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 you make this decision to move and you're in the Atlantic sun for a while, but then you had an opportunity to move into the horizon. Talk about those dynamics. How does that work? I, I had felt uh, uh, while I was still president and before we went D1, that the Horizon Conference was the ideal conference for us. Uh, Midwestern, uh, a set of uh, very strongly branded institutions, branch campuses of Illinois and Wisconsin and, and uh, some great natural rivalries, uh, mostly public, not all, but mostly public, major markets where we recruit students. I thought it was ideal. Uh, John LaCrine, the commissioner, uh, believe that as well, but he said, you're, you're early, you're too early in the process. Let's you and I stay in touch. Hmm. And as you go through, you know, there's a, I think it's a four or five year, four year, I think probationary period as you get into that and let's see, and they wanted to see what we were going to do with it too. But that was, that was always the goal because we wanted to be with a set of institutions that were like us or like what we wanted to be. And I, I used the example with you earlier in our earlier conversation. Michigan State after World War II, when, when the University of Chicago chose to leave the Big Ten, Michigan State pulled out all the stops to join the Big Ten. And I talked to the president who was well into retirement after that decision was made. And he said, most people think that was about athletics. He said, that was about academics. He said, we wanted Michigan State to affiliate with a set of institutions as strong as the as the Big Ten and everything that goes along with that. The, the sharing, the, but, but it is a collective brand. And it is important. And Karen, I want to add this as well. At the same time that Hannah was fighting that battle and won it, he was also creating scholarships at a level that allowed him to him, the, the institution, to recruit more national merit winners mm -hmm. than any other institution in the country. And that's a great example. It's not yeah. just about athletics, it was about raising raising all boats uh, and athletics being being one of them. It sends a great message. That's absolutely true. Can I think it does, as long as you can do it with integrity. Uh, absolutely. And, uh, I, I've been I've been close to athletics my entire uh, profession, pro professional life, and um, the 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 uh, the temptation, the temptation even in a mid major to cut corners to cross the line, because coaches, especially coaches who who see this as a stop along the way in their own career progression. Yeah. You have to win. And I began talking to coaches differently when we went division one, every time I'd meet with them in the fall. Interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Katie, what was your sense uh, of the, the conference uh, that, that, that you settled in the horizon league? It seemed like a good fit to you as well. And what did the, what did the students think? 
Well, you know, the, the Horizon League, I think, is, is great for Northern for a whole variety of reasons. And, and one of those reasons is because uh, a natural rival, rivalry was rekindled, and that's with Wright State University. Mm-hmm. And so when you dial back the clock, uh, back to that 1970, in the 1970s, maybe early 1980s, Northern and Wright State were rivals then. And then Wright State made the Division I transition. And Northern, of course, remained Division II. So joining the Horizon League rekindled that rivalry. And that's been fantastic. It's been great for Northern. It's been great for Wright State. It's also a set of institutions that are a lot like Northern. Uh, When you think about Wright State, um, Jim and I were were joking a little bit earlier this week that Wright State is just like Northern, except they have a medical school and we have a law school. And so they institutionally profile very similarly. They were, I think they were both founded in 1968 or founded at about the same time. But there are lots of other institutions that are very similar to the university too. So that sets up the ability for academic networks, uh, for other kind of student engagement networks, those types of things. Of course, the other great thing about the conference, it's a basketball conference. Um, and so you don't, you don't have football that's, that's happening with that as well. It's competitive across all of the sports, it, um, very competitive in soccer and volleyball and in, in all of the, the various sports. And it's a great from a, you know, one of the key things from cost, we, we talked about what the cost is travel. to go from division two to division one is, is travel. And so being within a region where you don't have to fly uh, to any of the games where you can, where you can bust to, to all of the games from a financial standpoint is a big deal. And as Jim mentioned earlier, the other part of this is that um, the Horizon League represents kind of a natural catchment area for the university from an admissions and a recruitment standpoint. You know, we were recruiting in Indianapolis, we were recruiting in Dayton, we were recruiting in Cleveland, all of those different places you were recruiting students from. And so uh, when the opportunity to join the Horizon League came up, we were grateful for the opportunity and saw it as being a, a really, really good fit just institutionally. That's great. That's great. Where where was Kentucky's state legislature at that point in terms of public support for the institution? Where are they today, and how much of a tension is that on all, all these discussions we're having? Either uh, way, yeah, we were. We, uh, the, the data supports the uh, the assertion, Karen, that NKU was at that time the, the least well funded of any of the public universities in the Commonwealth. We were the youngest, and I think the price they paid for its creation was that it wouldn't take money from other institutions. Okay. Now they've they've instituted performance budgeting. They they did uh, they did a good job over uh, the period uh, 2000 to to maybe 2008. Uh, then it got tough again. It's a Kentucky is a poor state, so it it, it its revenue has has. Uh, uh, not growing to, to, to allow them to do some things. It's it's tough politically. It's tough. Yeah. Uh, NKU has, uh, and so it, it would be difficult, I think, to say that that to, to, to draw the connection between Division One athletics and stronger support in Frankfurt. I mean, I'd like to be able to say that that that, that occurred and 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 it was significant, but I think that's a hard case to make, frankly. I do I agree. think that in terms of of uh, visibility and branding and a recognition of the maturation of the campus and its academic programs, its student population, what it does in the community. Athletics has been an important piece of that, but not the only piece. Got it. I agree. I agree entirely with Jim. I'm, I'm not sure that Northern's um, more recent funding success had anything to do with our transition related to, to yeah. athletics, 
But what I think the state legislature did do for us that was really key to our transition, we still needed a big piece to get from division two to division one. And that was that 10,000 seat arena that Jim talked about. That was a state funded project that was matched um, at that time with the largest gift in the institution's history to name that facility for a, a period of, of time. That, that was probably the biggest thing that the legislature helped us with that was directly tied to athletics. But even that, even that arena that now sits on Northern's campus is not just there for athletics. It's, it's there for the entire community. And it was really seen as a, a community asset. That's something that our community needed, not just for the institution, but for the entire community. Yep. Makes a lot of sense. Jim, you mentioned earlier about this idea of an academic consortium. You know, you compared what your experience was in the Big Ten with the Big Ten Academic Alliance, which is, for those of us who've worked on Big Ten campuses, you, you really understand how yeah. robust that sh information sharing, the libraries are all connected by technology. How has that worked in the horizon? How, does it work well at, at that level or does it cost, just cost a lot more money? Karen, I don't know if it works anywhere as well as it does, or at least the way I experienced it when I was an administrator at Michigan State Yeah, in, in the Big Ten, the Big 11, and for, for academic purposes. I mean, they just do it right, and they've done it right for 50 years, I think, at least. I don't think the horizon is anywhere near that, but, uh, but, there, is, but there is interaction as a consequence of our athletic affiliation on the academic side. I just don't, I, I can't speak to how robust that is, how recurrent it is. The, um, the, I, I think there's opportunity there, but, but so much of the interaction in the Big Ten, because all of the Big Ten universities are uh, research one, yeah. what, what you can describe as federal universities. And a lot of the interaction, the academic interaction is around uh, research big time research, sharing facilities, sharing cyclotrons and libraries and all of the other things that go with big science. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which, was so, key, which is key for COVID-19 testing and, and doing yeah. all that this, to get football back on the field is they had all of the resources of each other as well as yeah. their own campus. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Katie, anything to add to that? No, I, I think Jim covered it well. I think that this is really a place, though, where where all conferences have the ability to really make a tremendous difference and um, to bring people together, uh, to bring academic leaders, faculty, uh, administrators together to, to, to find out how they work together. Interestingly, for my colleagues who are board professionals, the Big Ten board professionals meet on a regular basis, and they've branded themselves as the Big Ten board professionals. And yeah. so every time we have a, a national conference or we have a meeting or uh, someone is reaching out to someone, they're, they're often, if you're in that conference, they know each other quite well. That, that to me is really something that could be quite aspirational for every conference that's out there across every division. I really Karen, uh, Karen you asked a question that didn't get answered uh, a while back, and that was uh, the, the similarities in student population. Mm -hmm. uh, NKU, NKU is about 50% first-generation college students. Okay. I would guess that almost every institution in the horizon would, re would reflect a similar percentage of first-gen uh, students. Uh, that, that oftentimes involves more, the need for more academic support, uh, especially in that first year or two. And uh, we're similar in a whole variety of ways that provides opportunity for us to learn from each other. Now, the, 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 the companion question is, is that being done? And I can't answer that. It, it may be, it may not be. But when you have similar institutions like this, 
similarly positioned in similar states, uh, there's a lot that can be learned from each other. Absolutely. No yeah. question about that. Yes, because the demographics are changing. You know, who's coming to our campus is changing dramatically. Dramatically. Yeah. Yep. Katie, our last uh, question is, is to you because you've done so much work with boards of regents, boards of trustees as a board professional. Help us just get a general understanding of, about the importance of boards in general and also how those board, the individuals of some boards can play key roles in driving the political and economic agendas of institutions. Sure, so, so boards are critical to universities. They, they are the steward uh, group for the entire institution who's looking out at the broad institution and who's looking out long into the horizon. And faculty obviously play a really key role. Uh, faculty have been at, at institutions for a long time who have that invested, but that responsibility is really vested with the board. And so when you, you think about the board's role, it has a number of roles. Um, one is to, to be looking out at that horizon, to be kind of the long-term stewards of the institution. One is from a risk management standpoint. Um, there is risk when it comes to athletics in all kinds of different ways. And making sure that the board has transparency with athletics, that they're uh, regularly briefed about athletics, that they understand the, the program and the, the contemporary issues, that they understand what is happening with that, if, that they understand the NCAA regulations, those pieces are incredibly important for boards to, to understand. Um, but there are other factors as well, kind of as, as you said, how athletics interplays with public relations and with marketing, how it interplays, if it does at all, with recruitment and with other aspects of that. But the boards are always very interested in that. And right, right now in particular, and probably forever, boards have also been very, very keyed in on risk management, risk mitigation, understanding that piece. So, so I would say that those are kind of two key factors for boards. You know, no individual board member can drive his or her, her own individual agenda without the support of the entire board. And so from time to time, when you might have an activist trustee or an activist region or an activist director who is really interested in a particular thing, that individual would need to, would need to kind of lobby all of those members, get everybody on the same page to be able to, to move whatever that thing may be forward. And that's the beauty of the board is that no one individual can, can, uh, it can act on behalf of the board. And in most boards, only one individual can speak on behalf of the board and that's the board chair. And so I think that those are some of the kind of typical governing mechanisms that boards use to, to make sure that the board is looking out, not for the interests of individuals, but for the interests of the institution and, um, and that they are those long-term stewards. That's tremendous. Well, in wrapping this up, if, if I have uh, any of my listeners who are either sitting college presidents or want to be college presidents and might be walking into a situation where there's clamoring to move to, to reaffiliate with either another NCAA division, to leave NAIA, to move to NCAA, what final pieces of advice do you have from the president and the trustee board relationship perspective? In terms of athletics, Karen, my advice would be uh, be cautious, uh, be clear-eyed in terms of what it will take to do what you want to do, what it's going to take in terms of constituent support, financial support. A president cannot be successful without a strong base. And can you make a move uh, without weakening your base to a point where you can't survive it? Mm -hmm. uh, recognize what success is. We had, to, we had to redefine what success at the Division I level was going to be. It wasn't going to be national championships. Uh, and uh, that's, and 
maybe most importantly, think of it not just about athletics, but how does this contribute to the aspirations and the, and the trajectory of your institution? And, and, and I had mentioned this to, to you earlier, I'd be glad to chat with any of your listeners who find themselves in the position of thinking about uh, this. I, I think it's an argument that reasonable men and women can disagree over. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd be glad to chat with them with it. About well, that's, that, that's awesome. Katie, how about you from your perspective? One of the things that, that I did in preparation for this conversation was I, I pulled up the board minutes from when Northern made the decision to, to go division one and, and to join at that time, the Atlantic Sun Conference. And um, when I read through the president's comments that were in those minutes, uh, it, it harkens back to everything that, that Jim has talked about, but I think it's also one of the biggest lessons. This didn't happen overnight. This was probably a decade in the making uh, that was happening. And there was real activity that happened during that entire time span. Um, so I am all for agility. I am all for innovation. I am all for creativity. I am all for getting things done quickly. But I don't think that this is one of those things where you want to be uh, creative or, uh, or get it done too fast. And so really taking the time to dig in and to understand the landscape, to understand what it means to your institution. This is a once in a institution's life that they get to make this transition from, from conference to conference, most likely. And so uh, taking that with great care and great concern, you know, in, in Jim's remarks at that particular meeting, he talked about the fact that he had talked with more than a dozen presidents and institutions who had made the, the change from division two to division one to really understand it from his perspective as a president, we made sure that we also educated the board, not just at that meeting where we took that vote to go division one, there was a board standing committee that looked at this, there was, uh, th there was board discussion about this all along. So this is not, this is not something that you can use to, to change your institution's trajectory or their, their course on a dime. It's something that takes a long and tremendous amounts of contemplation. Great advice, great advice. Jim, Katie, I can't thank you enough. I, I, not only was the conversation terrific, I really learned a lot because people don't often think about all the synergies you have to plan for. This is not like, where are we going for dinner tonight? This is a really big decision in the life of an institution. So I thank you because you've given us so much to think about and really appreciate you spending some time with us. Thank you, Karen. Thank you for inviting us. And uh, it's been great fun. Absolutely. Thank you, Karen. It's been wonderful.